If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. And while you are turning to Numbers chapter 11, uh, I just want to share. So some of you guys might know a little bit about me. You guys know, you know, a little bit about me. Hopefully you guys know a lot about me at this point. And if you don't, Here's something that I didn't say earlier. A lot of us like to go to Chick-fil-A afterwards, and uh, we go through the drive-thru of Chick-fil-A, and then we circle our cars up in the Teen Challenge parking lot. We eat outside. It's pretty cool. Um, So if you want, hey, if you want to get to know more about me, or actually you don't care about me, you just want to hang out with people, come hang out with us at Chick-fil-A, but make sure you ask your parents so that they don't get mad. Cool. All right. Hey, um, so something that you guys should know about me is that I love movies. Uh, I am a huge fan of movies. It doesn't matter what the movie is. Uh, In fact, Kayla and I, we really enjoy, uh, so we actually have this thing right now that we do, and basically we take, we watch movies together, but we take turns who picks the movie, and typically what we do is I'll find a movie that I think is really good that she's never seen, and then I'll pick it, and I have a list of movies, and then she has a list of movies, and then we'll watch them and stuff like that, right? So so it's a really cool thing that we get to do because we're just a huge fan of movies, but here's something that I've learned, right? Here's something that I have learned that is just incredibly true. That every good movie, what, what, a lot of times what can take a movie from being just a, great, a good movie to being a great movie is a really, really good villain. You know what I'm trying to say? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, like a good, you can have a good movie. Like, all right, it's good. But, like, what makes it a great movie oftentimes is you got that villain. You guys know what I'm talking talk about? Like, you have the guy that's, that is, opposes the hero, right? The, the person that makes life for the hero, for the protagonist, makes it difficult, right? And there are some iconic villains in movie history. One of them is a guy named Buff. You guys know Buff from Back to the Future? Anybody? Yeah, right? You got Buff from Back to the Future. Yeah. Biff. Online it said buff. It's Biff. Well, hey, hey, excuse me, I haven't seen it in a while, all right? Yeah. Brandon? Yeah. Biff. Sorry, Biff from Back to the Future. Then, of course, probably like, you know, I'm biased, but you got Darth Vader from Star Wars, right? And uh, and Emperor Palpatine also from Star Wars. Palpatine, not Palpatine, like like pulp, like orange juice, right? All right, Palpatine. Uh, Then you also have, uh, I didn't put this on my list, but I would feel wrong to say. Actually, no, I did put this on my list. Gollum from The Lord of the Rings is another one. Uh, There's also uh, Thanos from The Avengers, right? See, all of these here, what do all of those movies have in common? They have an iconic villain, but... There is one villain that to me rises above the rest. Not just this villain, but the portrayal of this villain is my all-time favorite, and it is Heath Ledger's Joker uh, from The Dark Knight. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it is... It is arguably uh, considered one of the greatest uh, portrayals of a villain in movie history. He does a fantastic job. And what it does is it takes a movie, The Dark Knight, which is like, like three days long, it's really long, uh, and it takes it from being a good movie to like a fantastic movie because of his acting job in that movie. But here's the thing that I want us to understand, though, is that the villain is incredibly important to the story, right? It's important for us to understand who the villain is. Who the villain is. When you think of movie villains, you know they're, they're they're what makes the movie so intense. They're the one that, that you know they oppose the protagonist. They you know if there wasn't a villain, then the movie would probably be super easy and super quick and not as like entertaining for us, right? 
And if you think of your life as a movie, if you think of your life as a movie that, that God has, is the director of your movie, and the, and the glory of God is the goal of the movie, then who is the villain in your movie, right? Don't, don't answer out loud. Like, who's the villain in your life movie? You know, a lot of times we maybe think that, you know, it's, you know, this person that's my villain, that person that's my villain. Maybe for you, it's like, you know, my mom is my villain, my dad is my villain, my sister or my brother is my villain, you know, or you're like, my ex is my villain, you know what I'm saying, right, whatever it may be. You know, we all have these different things. Maybe for some of you, you know, you say, hey, like, Satan is, is my villain. Here's the thing, like, you wouldn't be wrong, right? Absolutely. Like, like the devil is a villain. But however, the villain that we're going to talk about tonight is the villain that no one really seems to want to address. It's the villain that's so hard to pinpoint and incredibly difficult to defeat. This villain is the number one villain, the number one enemy in keeping you from fulfilling the mission that God has given you, the mission that God has in your life, the calling that God has for your life. He's the number, this is the number one villain that gets in the way of that. And this villain is yourself. The villain of yourself. And for me, the, my greatest villain is myself. As we head towards God's best for us, Right, God's will for our lives as we head towards this, God's best for our lives and his, and his purpose that he has given us, we all have the same struggles, and that struggle is getting out of our own way. You know, as we're going to see, this is truly the case for Israel. When we look at Israel, so we're in the book of Numbers, and, and we're, this is what we're going to see tonight. We've talked about over the first, really, when we look at the book of Numbers, it's, it's encompassing the 40 years in the wilderness for the people of Israel. Right, they're 40 years in the wilderness. They've been, they, uh, and right now, really the first 10 chapters is basically uh, just instructions, right? It's just instructions. So they've been at Mount Sinai for over a year and a half. They have left Egypt, right? They were slaves in Egypt. They leave Egypt, and they're at Mount Sinai, and they're going to the promised land. And what we're going to see is that ultimately Israel's biggest enemy is themselves. As we read Numbers 11... There's a phrase that I want you to pay extreme attention to. It's the word st a strong craving. Because that strong craving is going to derail their entire story in this chapter. A strong craving. This strong craving is going to be the undoing of many of the people of Israel and is going to actually lead to the death of many. So if, we're, if you have your Bibles, uh, Numbers chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 4. It says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing but at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance like that of bedillium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in, with mortars and boiled it in pots, and they made cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. So now we're in week three. 
going through the book of Numbers. And we talked about this, so just to give you a little bit of background from where we're at, right? People of Israel have been in, have been in Egypt, they've been slaves in Egypt for about 430 years. They've been slaves. What we see is that God saves them from slavery. That's in the book of Exodus, right? God frees them from slavery. And here's what we talked about the first week, this understanding that God saved you from bondage and slavery to sin, but he saved you to a purpose, right? The people of Israel were saved from slavery, but God didn't save them from slavery just so that they could sit in the desert. He saved them from slavery so that they could go to the promised land. And a lot of us as Christians, we got to understand that just because you're saved, like you got saved, awesome, your journey has just started, Right? Like, it's not like, okay, I just wait till I die and go to heaven now. No, like, like, man, you're saved from slavery, but don't just sit in the desert. It's time to press on to what God has for you, right? God, you saved you from sin, and he saved you to a purpose. Then last week, we talked about this idea that the people of Israel, God gives them instructions, right, in Numbers chapter 2 of how they're to arrange the camp, right? How the presence of God was at the center of the camp. And what we talked about is as you move forward in fulfilling God's purpose for your life, God has to be at the center of everything, Right? That's what we talked about last week. And up until this point, the people of Israel have been totally obedient. They've done everything that God's told them to do. But now what we're going to see is what happens when they're not obedient. See, as we move forward in trying to fulfill what it is that God's place called us to do, right? Like I said, every single person in this room, God has an abundant life full of fulfillment, joy, and peace for you. He has gifted you to fulfill his purpose in your life. And what is that purpose? To bring honor and glory to him by making disciples. And a lot of times we think that that, you know, hey, look, making disciples, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to preach, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lead a Bible study, but how are you being faithful to bring honor and glory to God with the skill set that God has given you? Right? And what you do is when you, find, when you figure that out, when you find out what that thing is and you live your life with, on mission to glorify God, you will find the abundant promised life that Christ promises his people. And as you move towards that, here's the thing. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to try and distract you from it. But one of the, like I said, the biggest enemy to fulfilling God's, pur- God's purpose for your life is ultimately yourself. Because you're going to have desires that you want that are going to conflict with God's desires for you. We all have this. Why? Because we're sinful people, right? We're sinners. So we have natural desires that are going to go against what God wants for us. So here's the question. How do you live your life contending for what God has for you while at the same time wrestling with your own desires that conflict with God's will for you? How do you fulfill God's will when your will is opposite of his? That's what we're going to look at tonight. So first thing I want us to look at is the reality of strong cravings. The reality of strong cravings. This word, so verse 4, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. This word rabble also means a mixed company. Uh, and this is, this is probably the case because a lot of the people that came out of Israel at this point, at this point there's about 2.5 million of them. Chances are a lot of them, a handful of them, are not all Israelites. Chances are that some of them were just fellow slaves that were in Egypt that came with them. But I think this mixed company also brings with it a connotation that they were also a mixed company spiritually. Right? That there were some in the group, there was a lot of them in the group that were faithful to God. But there was also those in the group that did not believe And you see this in church, right? Like, I'm not naive. Not everybody in this room is probably sold out for Jesus. 
If you go on a Sunday morning and you go to church, and you're going to see, like, you know, if you come to church for here, let's say we have, you know, about 1,000 people that come and worship here on Sunday morning. Chances are, like, not all of them are going to be, like, true born-again believers, right? So there's mixed company on Sunday mornings. There's mixed company here with the people of Israel. So that's kind of what, I think that's really what it's pointing to. But what, what we really want to see is that they had a strong craving. And what is it that they were craving? What was the strong craving for? It says, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. What they wanted was meat. They wanted meat. Now, where are they? Where are we talking? Where are they? They're in the desert, okay? They are in the desert. For over a year and a half, the people of Israel have been miraculously fed by God. And what did God feed them while they were in the desert? Manna. Okay, so for those of you who don't know the story, that's totally cool. Basically what you have is that God would feed the people manna, right? And basically Moses here in the book of Numbers gives an explanation of what manna was. It was like this coriander seed. And basically what you have, it was like bread, okay? So basically they would use it to make bread and, and different things like this. And this is what God fed them every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And what would happen is they would wake up in the morning and God would have the food right out. Basically God would drop the food in their camp. And they would go out and they would collect enough food for that day. And any food that they tried to store up would end up rotting. It would, they, the next day they would wake up and that food that they tried to save would rot. And basically what God is trying to do is he's trying to remember, he's preparing them for the promised land. He's preparing them for fulfilling the purpose that he has for their life. And part of walking in the purpose that God has for you is understanding that you have to rely on him every single day. Right? So he's trying to train them in this idea of, hey, relying on me, trust in me. And here's the thing, they didn't even have to work for it. God simply provided it for them every single day. But they wanted something else. They wanted meat. They had a desire that was contrary to what God had for them. And if we're honest, we find ourselves in this situation very frequently, right? We could be honest, right? We find ourselves in this situation very frequently. We see what God has given us. We see what God's will is for our life. But so often we want something different. And here's the thing. Like, a lot of times we blame the devil. We blame Satan on our temptations. But here's what I want you to understand. Your temptation to do things that are contrary to God's will for your life is coming from you. So if you, I don't have this in my notes. But if you, go, if you also, like, put a thumb in Numbers chapter 11 and go to James James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted, how? When he is lured away and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See, what we're trying to understand is that sin and temptation to sin arises from within. What does the devil do? The devil presents you with opportunities to act on what you already want to do. Right? Like, the devil doesn't give you the desires. What he does is he, gives, he presents you with the opportunity to act on the desires. Does that make sense? Right? So, here's the thing. We have to understand that there is a reality of strong cravings. No one in this room does not have sinful desires. We all do. Even me on this stage. And the sooner we begin to understand that, the better. So many times I find myself desiring things that I know God does not desire for me right now. For many of us, 
in this room, it's a desire for a relationship. And, you, and I go to this all the time because I think that this is like the number one thing that I see that derails young people all the time is an unhealthy desire for a dating relationship. And what we're seeing, this is a perfect example, right? Like so many times we want this, but God has you single for a moment. But we so desperately crave that boyfriend or that girlfriend, or not even that, whatever it may be. We so desperately desire this, this, you know, this acceptance or this whatever. Perhaps you want this or you want that. Regardless, at some point, our sinful flesh is going to lead us to want something that God does not want for us in the moment. And that doesn't make you, like, that doesn't ostracize you. Here's nothing. If you're tempted, understand, that just makes you a human. Makes you a person. So don't allow Satan to shame you because you feel temptation. We all feel temptation. Right? There's a reality of strong cravings. But the second thing we want to see is what is the result of strong cravings? See, as we're pressing forward to God's, in God's will, moving forward to what God has for us, then here's the thing. What we have to do is we understand that we cannot allow our cravings and our desires to drive us more than God's desires. But when we do that, when we succumb to our strong cravings over God's desire for us, there are consequences. There is a result to that. And we see this in the story. See, when we encounter these moments where our desire clashes with God's, we have a choice to make. Will I sacrifice my desire for God's or will I insist on mine? Will I sacrifice my cravings or will I insist on them? And I'll tell you that when you insist on your cravings, as the Israelites do in this story, it always ends poorly. Always. So first we saw the reality of strong cravings, but now we're going to look at the result of strong cravings. And it's quite simple. When we insist on our strong cravings, it always leads to discontentment. It always leads us to not be content. Let's go back to verse 4. Now the rabble, or now the mixed company that was among them, had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. See, as a Christian, contentment is the most overlooked but incredibly valuable trait that you can possibly have. To be content with where you are in life is a gift. How incredible it would be for you to lay your head down at night and be totally at peace and joyful with everything that God's given you. Could you imagine that? That even the things that you want, you're like, you know what? If God hasn't brought it to me, I don't need it right now. Imagine that peace. But so many of us live our lives discontent. We don't have this contentment. But here's the thing, though, like 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, uh, Paul says to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. As Christians, we should be the most content people on earth. Why? If you think about it, you think, think about this. As Christians, we believe that we have a God that desires the best for us, that desires for us to have a life filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with love, filled with purpose, filled with fulfillment. And we know that our God loves us. And he wants us to have those things, and we know that he's capable of giving it to us. 
Think about that. So if God wants you to have a life filled with fulfillment and joy and peace and comfort, right? And now not necessarily meaning that it's going to be free of pain, right? But saying that he wants you to have this full, abundant life, John 10, 10. Filled with fulfillment and purpose. And he is going, he is capable of giving it to you. Man, you should be content. Because you think about it, if there's anything in your life that you need, your God is capable of giving it to you, and he wants to give it to you. Man, I should feel content. I should feel totally at peace. If you combine these truths, it can only lead to contentment. God desires for us to live a life marked by joy, peace, and contentment. However, if we're honest, this is so rarely the case for many of us. So many of us want what we don't have, and we don't want what we do have. I think we can all relate, right? Like when you're young, all you want to do is be older. Now that you're older, all you want to do is be younger again, right? And I tell you this all the time. I want to say this again. Right now is the least amount of responsibility you will have in your entire life. Enjoy it. Use it. Right? Because what's going to happen? You're going to graduate... And now, you got to get a job. Right? And then it goes from there. Then, Lord willing, you get married. Then you get kids. And it just grows and it goes and it goes and it goes. Right now is the least amount of responsibility you will have in your entire life. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to you to say, hey, be content where God has you. Stop trying to grow up so fast. Hang out with people your age. Enjoy being where you're at. Discontentment is something that we rarely address, though, because we're so quick to justify it. We're so quick to justify why we aren't content. So here's the thing. How do you know if your life is not content? How do you know if your life is marked with discontentment? And I have three questions that you can ask yourself. Three questions that I'm going to ask you and for, to help you understand how, do you, how can you tell if your life is marked by discontentment. And it's based off of this story. First question, have you become bored of God's miracles? Have you become bored with God's miracles? Let's look at the story. What do they say? They say there is nothing at all but this manna to eat. There's nothing at all for us but this manna. You listen to their attitude, right? All we got is this manna. Now, mind you, if you read the explanation of what manna was, basically it was like bread that was covered in oil, and it was like, but basically, like, historians basically kind of like studied it, and what they figured out was basically it most likely could have tasted like donuts, but they were nutritious. Nutritious donuts. Like, yo, boy, like, but they're complaining. And here's the thing how did they get those donuts? God literally just dropped it in their lap. It was a miracle every single day. It was a miracle every single day. They didn't have to harvest it. They didn't have to grow it. God simply and miraculously made it fall on them every day. I mean, this was a great provision that God had given them. But what did they say? All we got is this manna. And, I, I mean, what do we see? We see that they've grown bored of God's miracle. They experience it every day, so it's not special anymore. Nah, it is what it is. 
Aren't you amazed that there's manna here? Yeah, there's been manna here for like a year and a half every single day. And I want to ask you this question. How prone are you to grow bored of God's everyday miracles in your life? Right? It happens all the time. See, they've grown bored of God. God has been miraculously blessing them for so long that their sinful desires have caused them to grow bored of it. And this is the first sign of discontentment. The moment that you and I begin to grow bored and unappreciative of God's miraculous provision, we need to check ourselves. Psalm 9.1. What does he say? I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all of your wondrous deeds. James 1.17. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Think about it. What are the everyday miracles that you experience that you've grown so accustomed to that you stopped being amazed by them? I have a list of them. God woke you up this morning. God allows your heart to beat right now. He created you. He gave you a room with air condition. He provided you with a job or with a family that can afford the clothes that are on your back. He spins the world in the palm of his hands. And he forgives and paid for all of your sins. Do you wake up every day amazed that you have a relationship with the creator of the universe because he died for your sins? How often are you amazed by your salvation? Or have you just gotten used to it? Or have you just gotten used to it? That last one's incredible to me. I heard it said that God's greatest display of his power was not creating the universe, but rather saving a single sinner. Because when God created the universe, he made it out of nothing. But when he saves the sinner, he takes a ball of mess and he turns it into beauty. Are you, have you grown used to that? See, don't allow your desires for other things to make you unappreciative of what God continues to do for you right now. Second question, do you romanticize the past? Verse 5, what do the people say? They say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Listen to how they're describing how they used to have it. All of this abundance, all of this food overflowing like a golden corral that tastes good, right? Right? Like, oh, 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 we had it so great in Egypt. What was Egypt? Slavery. Slavery. They were in bondage every day. They were the ones that were crying out to God saying, please, save us, save us, save us. And now they're like, oh, we had it so good back in slavery. Do you hear this? What are they doing? They're romanticizing the past. They're remembering it as being better than what it actually was. I see this a lot with Christians too. See, when we surrender our lives to Christ, naturally there's things that we surrender and we give up. For some of you in this room, maybe when you became a Christian or when you decided to, to devote your life fully to Christ, you know what? You, you weren't able to hang out with those friends that you used to hang out with. Or you weren't able to do the things that you used to do. And then what happens? As soon as your desire starts to stray from God's desire, what do you start to do? You start to remember the things that you used to do. Man, I had so many friends back then. Or I, could, I was able to do this back then. I could do this back then. I could do what, and, and, and man, I had it made in the shade back before I was living for Jesus. Why? Because we're discontent. And here's the thing. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, the bondage that made you run to Jesus in the first place? 
that? What do we do? We take the past that was in shambles and we remember it as being better than what it actually was. Ecclesiastes 7.10, Solomon says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For this is not from wisdom that you ask this. Third question. So the first one was, have you grown bored of God's miracles? The second one, do you romanticize the past? But the third one, do you exaggerate the present? Verse 6, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Pay attention to this phrase, our strength is dried up. Because we're going to skip ahead a little bit here and go to uh, verse 32. Basically what you find is that God gives them meat. And he gives them quail. You guys know what quail is? They're birds, okay? And just so you know, that's still to this day, once a year, there, is, uh, there are quail that actually, uh, what's the word? Migrate. Bingo, right? All right, so there's these, there's, there's, there are massive flocks of quail that actually migrate across the Arabian Peninsula. And to, the, and to this day, Arabian people will catch close to 2 million birds with nets during this migration period. So God brings them a bunch of quail. In verse 32, look at what they do. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day, and they gathered quail. Those who gathered the least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves over the camp. To give you an idea, ten homers is roughly 470 pounds of bird. Those who gathered the least gathered nearly 500 pounds of bird. Now, what did they say? Previously, they said, we're so, our strength is so dried up and frail that we don't have the energy, that we're so weak. All of a sudden, they get some meat, or not, they don't haven't eaten it yet. All of a sudden, God provides them what they get, what they want, and now they got all the energy in the world. They're out there harvesting for two days straight, all day, all night, all day the next day, carrying 500 pounds of bird. Those were the least Chances are that most of them had about 1,000 pounds of quail. All of a sudden, they got all this energy. You see, when we fail to be content with what God has given us, we exaggerate how bad we have it. We exaggerate how bad we have it. How many people do you hear say this? Christians don't do anything fun. Really? Really? Like, that's not true. Come on now. Like, I have fun with my life. (laughs) All right? Just because, you know, like, I don't know, whatever, right? But what do we do? People exaggerate because they aren't content with the provisions that God's given them. So now that we, you know, now that they can do uh, what they really want to do, they don't have any problems with their strength. And often we justify our sinful desires, and we do this by exaggerating our present circumstances so that people will agree with our sinful decisions, See, as you move forward in your walk with Christ, there's going to be more and more things that God has for you that will conflict with what, you ha- with what you want for you. See, earlier on in your relationship with Christ, it may not seem like it, but as you grow closer to him and as you mature, you're going to realize that there's more and more things that, about yourself that you have to say no to and more and more things of him that you have to say yes to. It's the same thing with leadership. Those of you who are leaders... What you learn is as you go up in leadership, what you find out is you have less and less privilege. See, there's things that me as a pastor that I would, I probably would do certain things, but I don't because of the position that I'm in. It's the same thing with our walk with Christ. 
Do not allow your personal desires to take precedent over God's desires. So we see the result of our strong cravings, but then we see God's response to strong cravings. Verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Well, how does God respond to this? He's offended. God is angry. He's furious with the people of Israel. And can you imagine why? You see, the problem was that they were not content with God's provisions. And if they knew that they needed, and if, see, they weren't content with God's provisions, as if they knew what they needed more than God did. Like, God, what you gave us isn't good enough. See, the insult on the provision was actually and ultimately an insult on the provider. To say that you're not content with what God has given you is to say that you're not content with God himself, which so many of us do. Have you ever been given a gift that, like, and let's just be real, it's a trash gift, okay? But the person gave it to you, and they're looking at you like, So what do you do? You're like, oh, thank you so much, right? Like, you're not going to be like, this is straight up dog water, okay? This is garbage, right? Like, no one's going to say that, right? Unless you're just a total jerk. Why? Because you know that the person, like, if you just, like, trash the gift, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to feel like you're trashing them. These people are openly trashing the provision that God's given for them, which is a direct insult against him. I think we got to be careful when we think about God, though, because we have this idea. There's a view of God that he's always angry, that he's up there with a hammer just ready to lay into somebody. But then there's another view of God that he's just a big teddy bear, and he really doesn't really care what you do. He's a big teddy bear in the sky. He's not really angered by the sins of his people. We have to be balanced. We have to understand that sin angers God. Sin angers God. So what does God do? Remember how I told you there's this mixed company, right? See, God will both judge those that are not his, and he will discipline those who are. And God does this in many ways, but one of the ways that he does it, and the way that we see it done in this story, is that he gives them exactly what they ask for. Verses 18 through 20, I love this. Listen to how God responds. God tells Moses, he says, Say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and it becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? God's saying, You want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you so much meat that you're going to hate it afterwards. You skip ahead, verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and left them fall, and it let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on either side, all around the camp, about two cubits above the ground. So what you have is you have these birds that have fallen about a day's journey outside of the camp, about three feet deep. God has given them so much bird they can't stand it. But notice, though, that God gave them what they wanted, but notice how he does it. Notice that the quail was outside of the camp. Mind you, what was in the center of the camp? The presence of God. Here's what I want you to understand. Whenever you want, whenever you seek to fulfill your desire over God's, it will always take you further from God. 
Always. 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 Chasing your desires over God's always leads you away from him. Psalm 106, verses 13 through 15, it actually talks about this story. It says, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert, and he gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. Right, they wanted, they, you know, they, 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 they would rather be physically full than spiritually full. So God allowed them to be physically full, but he also made them spiritually lean. So how does this work? Whenever we ask for God's desires, right, and, and, and they're con- well, we ask for our desires and they're contrary to God's, we insist on our desires, sometimes God gives you exactly what you want. But that has two different things. It's like, so for those that are Christians, it is designed for one reason. For those who are not Christians, it has another outcome. For those who are Christians, those who are God's, God does this to discipline us. And to make us more like Christ, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. And, and you are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Man, like, that's a smack of truth. God says, you want meat so bad, fine, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you so much that you're going to hate it. And why does he do this? Because if you're like me, you read this and you almost kind of laugh. Like, is God just being super petty right now? You know? Is God just being petty? I don't think so. I believe that oftentimes God gives us what we want, to desperate, uh, that we want so desperately to show us that it's not going to satisfy like you think it will. Like I said, let's go back to the relationships analogy. So many times, you want a boyfriend, you want that girlfriend, you want it so bad, and then you get it, and you're like, I don't want this anymore. (laughs) So many times, right? You beg God, God, please give me this, and then he gives it to you, and then you realize, you know what? It's not satisfying you the way that you thought it would. See, the problem is not God's provision. The problem is you and me. The problem is that we want too many things other than God. And we want those things to do what only God can do. That's not how it works. And sometimes God will allow you to have those things to show you that it's not going to fulfill you. But I do want you to understand something, though. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, bought by the blood of Jesus, this discipline is always for your good. Always. And God will never allow you to be destroyed by your sinful decisions because his grace is sufficient. However, how does God giving, what, giving us our sinful desires work for the person who is not a Christian? Verse 33. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, 
the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. What happened? They died. They died. You see what happens, though? The desire of the people ultimately led to their destruction. Now, we hear this, and we are confused, right? Like, we're confused, and it's weird, but this is God's judgment on people that want everything other than God. So what does he do? He gives them what they want. And oftentimes, here's the thing. God allows people to have what they want, and in doing so, they bring judgment upon themselves. This is explained in Romans chapter 1, where Paul is explaining that God has revealed himself to all mankind through creation and through in many other ways, and there's no excuse. However, men suppress this truth, truth because of their sinfulness. If you read Romans 1, this is all explained, right? And what God does is he allows them to bring judgment upon themselves. At this point, God doesn't even have to judge them. They're judging themselves. And three separate times in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that God gave them up. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 2, chapter 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Want to know why people get away with stuff today? It's not that God isn't just. It's because they're storing up wrath that they're going to get all at once. That's a terrifying thought. See, this is a strict punishment that we see in Numbers chapter 11, but this is a strict punishment, yet it is an important one. Because remember, God is preparing his people for the promised land. He's helping them understand that the abundance you seek, your desires won't bring. Here's the thing. God knows you better than you do. God knows you better than you do. He's teaching them and us an incredibly valuable lesson that an abundant life is found in laying down your desires. Because God's desires for you are always for your best. What I found is you find life by losing it. You find true joy by letting go of what you think might give it to you. So we see the reality of strong cravings, and I'm, this is going to take like two seconds, so don't, don't worry. The reality of strong cravings. We talked about, man, I'm forgetting my own points. The reality of strong cravings. Second point is the result of strong cravings, God's response to strong cravings, and now we see what we must run from strong cravings. Verse 34, what do they do? Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatavah, because they were buried there, they buried the people who had the craving. And you see this a lot. What they do is they, they, they find a place where God's judgment is poured out, and they name the place after it. If you see, in Hebrew, what that name is, is the graves of craving. That's what that means. What do they do? They identified this place, what God did, and they say, this is what God did. We're not going back to that. Run from those cravings, understanding that they're not going to lead you to what God has for you. They're not going to lead you to the fulfillment that you seek, because only Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. The last thing I want to say before we go, I know I went long. I've been doing good not going long lately, but hey, everybody has an off week. <laughs> Here's what I want you guys to understand. That there is a good kind of discontentment. 
there is a good kind of discontentment. And that discontentment is this. Is that you're not content with what this world gives you. That's a good kind of discontentment. You want to know why? Because it leads you to the one that can provide the things that you seek. Namely, God. And for the non-Christian, this kind of contentment is the one thing that can save them. To understand that the peace, the love, the joy, the fulfillment, the purpose that they seek can only be found in Christ. Because Christ died on the cross. He paid the debt that they could not pay, that you could not pay, that I could not pay, so that we could receive the life that we do not deserve. I want to encourage you. Be content with what God has given you. Understand that in him is the fullness of joy, the fullness of life. Don't allow your desires to stray you away from his. And seek to glorify him by laying yourself down because he laid himself down for you. Does that make sense? All right, guys, I'm going to pray. I'm going to let you guys go. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. God, I ask that you would help us to lay our desires down so that we could take up yours. Father, I thank you for everyone in this room. For those of us who are going to go eat, I ask that you bless the food we're going to eat um, and bless our time together. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.